I'm joined today by Peter Newhouse, Global Head of Reward at Unilever, to explore the purpose and value of reward in large organisations and to discuss how to build a successful career in reward. So, Peter, most candidates I interview find it very difficult to give me all of the details of their package off the top of their head, which suggests that most companies aren't getting the most bang for their buck from reward. What's Unilever doing to make sure it, it gets the most bang for its buck? We're doing a lot in that area. So last year we introduced a total reward statement across our management population, 96 countries, so really proud of the fact that we managed to do that. But not only do we show them their total reward statement itemising all their bits and pieces, we also have in there what we call Rate My Reward. So they have the opportunity when they've looked at their statement to go into a survey which shows them each of the elements and allows them to say how important each element is to them and how satisfied they are with it. And if they're dissatisfied with it, why are they dissatisfied? For example, they don't understand it, they need more information, they'd like more of it, or it's irrelevant. You know, so we have some standard responses that they can enter. And then, they, of course, they have an opportunity to give us their comments and suggestions for improving the way that that piece of the package works. At the end of all of that, we ask them some advocacy questions. You know, would they be critical of their package without being asked? Or if they were asked, would they be critical of it? Or would they be supportive of their package? You know? So that gives us really good impression of uh, how people feel about it. So last year, we rolled that out across about 14,000 people. That's most of our management population. This year, we'll add on the internationally mobile people and the very top of the organization, the most senior people as well. And then we'll extend it down into the organization because I'd like it to cover absolutely everybody. That's going to take a little while to get there. But it's given us a, a lot of data. So I think we probably have more data on what people feel about their reward than any other organization that I've come across. And we're beginning to use that to help to steer the reward package. So I describe this as kind of creating a steering wheel for reward. And the steering wheel is really based of, you know, firstly, we need to understand how we're spending our money. The total reward statement helps us to do that on an aggregated basis. And then we also need to understand how people feel about that. Rate My Reward provides that input. Then we also need to understand how we stack up against the market. So market competitiveness is a factor. We also need to understand engagement. How engaged are the people? Um, is there a relationship between these things? We need to understand business results and affordability. Can we do things differently? Um, we also need to get across our philosophy because just because people don't like something in their package doesn't necessarily mean that we would abandon it. it. It may mean that we should explain it more clearly and it could be that there are gaps in the way that we're actually getting our case across. So using those inputs, we're sort of developing a much better steering wheel. The, the intention of that really is to make reward relevant. You know, I think that if reward is not relevant to the individual, then we're kind of wasting our money. And I think that's the point you're making is that we're not actually always getting at what it is that motivates people. And so our desire really is to understand reward from a consumer's point of view. All of our people are consumers of reward. And we want to understand how they feel about it. And we want to make the package relevant to them. Because if it's not relevant, then really it's not doing what it should be doing. We're wasting our money. And what have been the biggest surprises and the feedback you've got through that? Well, I think there's a huge amount of data, so we still have to kind of, we, we, we actually got the, the latest set of results, or the first set of results, I should say, at the end of August, so we're trawling through the information. We've already sent some feedback out to the individuals who participated, and so on a global basis, what we can say is that generally people in Unilever 
are quite satisfied with their pay. They're good advocates for pay. But there are some clearly uh, clear signals where, for example, salary is hugely important to them, incentives possibly more difficult for them to understand, so are they really working correctly? So there's a big uh, learning for us. I think beyond that, something even more radical, what it seems to suggest is that the people who are most satisfied with their package tend to be older, longer service people in the most senior positions. So you could say to yourself that maybe we've designed a package which works well for the population that's currently running the company, but are we designing a package that works for the population of the future? So for example, satisfaction levels on the part of advocacy levels on the part of um, part-time females who are younger with less service is not as strong. So actually, are we kind of missing the future boat? And, and what should we be doing? What should we do to address that? Because if we don't address that, we could end up with a package which is increasingly irrelevant for a larger proportion of the population. And I think that's really interesting and a big challenge to look at that and see if we can understand it better. To what extent do you believe that reward drives performance? How much time have you got? So, um, you know, this is obviously the, the most exciting and interesting question of all, and we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. Um, it really is fascinating. I suppose I'd start somewhere slightly different. I'd say, well, um, what do we mean by performance? So I think part of the problem is that we don't define performance clearly enough. We kind of expect that reward will do that for us. You know, if we're going to pay a bonus, then bonus becomes a kind of substitute for communication. It becomes a substitute for performance management. You know, it's the solvent that cures all problems. The chance of that being true is very, very low. So reward won't solve all of our problems. I think the utility of reward is that it provides a focus for defining what we want. So, you know, in terms of what does good look like, having some reward attached to the process helps managers go through the exercise of defining what it is that they'd like people to deliver. And I think that's hugely important because if you're not really clear about what the organisation's expecting from you, then it's very difficult to perform at the right level. So in a, in a way, reward does provide the solvent that, that uh, enables that. But does it actually drive performance? Different question altogether. Um, in my view, I think that people are different. And so some people are heavily driven by rewards and other people aren't. And there's some really interesting work in this area. For example, uh, more lately, Daniel Pink, you know, fa fantastically interesting. So what he says is that people are not really motivated fully by money. What really motivates them is things like a sense of purpose, autonomy, mastery of what it is that they do are much more significant drivers. Um, and I think that's fascinating and probably true. Uh, there's other work by um, uh, Gareth Jones and Rob Goffey, the character of the corporation, where they decide that uh, really solidarity and sociability are important cultural features of every organisation. So they develop a little scale of sociability on the one hand, the extent to which people um, you know, like to get on with each other, and solidarity being a kind of sense of common purpose. And so where you've got very high sociability and high solidarity, you've got a communal approach. And in a communal approach, it's not really something which is incentivizable. It's a cultural feature where people like to get things done together. And so reward doesn't feature very heavily. If, on the other hand, you've got high um, solidarity and low sociability, in other words, you've got a strong sense of purpose, but you're not very collective, then you're probably quite individualistically driven. And he calls that mercenary. And so in a mercenary culture, incentives play a strong role because 
it gives those driven people who aren't very sociable but have a very strong sense of purpose um, some clear rewards for getting things done. And you could argue that people who are like that, in other words, that's their character, uh, are attracted towards organisations that pay them like that because they wouldn't feel comfortable being paid the same as other people who weren't as driven as themselves because they wouldn't feel that that was fair. On the other hand, if you have got an organisation that's much more communal, um, then you really wouldn't have individualistic incentives because they would be divisive. So I think the answer to the question is, is a lot around the culture of the organisation, the kind of people you attract, the kind of people you want to attract. And then I think the answer becomes a bit of a variable depending upon what sort of organisation you're looking at and what you're trying to achieve. But we're just scratching the surface of a very, very interesting question. <laughs> and it, it's, it strikes me from operating in this market that the demands on a head of award have changed dramatically over the years and the, and the shape of the role has changed. What's your view of that? To what extent do you think it's changed over the last 10 years? I think it probably has, but I mean, I'd go back even further. So I think reward is a relatively new profession. So if you think back uh, you know, in the early 80s, 30 years ago, no computers, no bonus plans, no share schemes. You know, all of these things are relatively recent inventions. So I think the head of rewards role has become quite technical. We've gone through a very technical phase where knowledge of accounting, taxation, the technicalities of all of those rather esoteric disciplines that we apply has been paramount. You know, so you have to be good at what you do. I think we're kind of reaching the end of that era, and I think the era now is an era of application. You know, can you actually play tunes on that technicality and make it work for an organisation without it sounding excessively um, technically driven? You know, because reward should motivate people, it should inspire people to do the kind of thing that helps the organisation achieve its goals. And if you're not able to do that, then reward is letting you down. So I think the role of the head of reward, having gone through a very technical phase, very market-driven, is now going to go through a phase where it's much more about application. And I think when we kind of look back from the future of what we're doing today, I think we will see that it's not that great. You know, we've gone through a period where you know, we think we do lots of wonderful things, but we're still very heavily driven by market competitive practice. And I think that doesn't get us as far as it needs to. Uh, I heard a fantastic um, um, phrase from a, a friend of mine, couple of years ago who said you know, we, we pretend that labour is like a marketplace and the reward is really market driven but it's the only market where the product has an opinion about its own price <laughs> and I think that um, that kind of tells you everything you need to know so it's not just technical it, it is also around psychology and surround motivation surround culture so that the real re reward ambit should be far wider if you don't understand the way that the operation the organization functions in terms of its culture, then you're going to get the wrong kind of reward program in there and it won't work. So I think it's going to be a question of understanding the linkages much more than we have done in the past. And presumably a big part of what you call application is communication, not just internally but also externally. You know, it seems to me that you know, surely reward ought to be part of the brand proposition. You know, so when you're looking at the annual report of accounts, you have all this wonderful stuff about what the company stands for. And then when you look at the remuneration section, you've got a load of technical stuff about you know, how much people are paid. And we're not really seeing clearly enough that the reward element is a fundamental feature of the, uh, 
proposition of the company. It's part of its brand image. And we need firmer alignments around that because if we don't align those things, then there's something which isn't really fitting well and that can't work, surely. You know, so we need to do a lot of work in that area. Very few reward professionals become group HR directors. There are some, but it's a very small minority at this stage. Why do you think that is? I think quite a few HR directors have somewhere in their background a bit of reward. You know, I think it's hard to be an HR director without at least a working knowledge of how reward functions. Um, but yes, you're right. I think when you get a certain to a certain level in the reward field, it's not that likely that you'll make that transition into the CHRO role. Um, good thing, bad thing? Not sure. I, I, the way I'd look at it is that reward sits to the side of HR. It's not mainstream HR in many respects. We, we don't speak the same language as a lot of the other HR people. We're very kind of mathematically focused. So our alignment tends to be more to strategy, to finance, to legal, to corporate governance, and not as much to the talent side of HR. And I think that's one of the reasons why you find this. And especially in smaller companies where you know, the, the more esoteric parts of reward wouldn't really be done by the incumbent reward head. It would be done by consultants, and often those consultants would work with the head of finance or the company secretary or the CEO directly or the chairman or the board. And so there are lots of things that the reward function could do that are actually not in its remit because it's done by specialists that are outside the company. And actually, those specialists align themselves somewhat differently to your conventional HR people. It's very difficult to break into the top reward role in a PLC without Remco experience. It's a sort of catch-22, isn't it? So what advice would you give there? I think it's very difficult. I mean, I think with, um, you know, with a growing number of kind of leadership teams, it is possible for reward people to get good exposure to senior management. But it's not the same as working on a remuneration committee with non-executive directors. And it's really hard to get that experience in some sort of simulated environment. And it's extremely difficult to take people along with you to a remuneration committee meeting. It doesn't really work. You know, so it's not as if you can you know, take people in there to see what goes on and, and experience it. It's really, really difficult to do. What we are trying to do is working with some other companies. So um, Swiss companies just happens to be a bunch of Swiss companies. And what we're creating is a sort of reward academy where we can do some proper simulations uh, using cross-company experience and senior outsiders to, to actually make uh, an, a training experience which is, is realistic, more doing than, than classwork. And I think that if we pursue that, we could actually go quite a long way to beginning to make people aware of the sorts of things that are involved, uh, at least give them a bit of an introduction to that but it's not an easy thing to do. So I think you know, we are going to be somewhat stuck with this problem that you can't get into it unless you're in it, and, and it's hard to get in it. You, know, you are going to have to go to a different kind of company. One of the fundamental problems with reward is that you know, the career path almost forces you to change company at a certain stage, and you probably can get better experience in a consulting organisation to have some awareness of how remuneration committees work because of course every remuneration committee is different and you really ideally need to have experience of several remuneration committees in order to function effectively in any one remuneration committee and it's only really the consulting companies that have access to that much volume 
And in fact, it's only some specialized consulting companies these days who have that access as well. So it is a really difficult problem to solve. So do you see time spent on a consultancy, in a reward consultancy firm, an important part of building one's career if you want to reach the top? I think it's probably quite useful. It's not absolutely vital, like most things in the reward space, it all depends. I think that the key thing is to try to build your career to be as broad as it is deep. I think simply developing deep technical expertise is not enough. So I think we have to acknowledge that there's a depth and a breadth in reward, and ideally you want someone who's got both. And the breadth is huge. You know, actually, when you look across the reward space, it spans an awful lot of different things. So you have global mobility, you've got equity schemes, you've got long-term incentives, you've got uh, bonuses, you've got all kinds of things in there, benchmarking, salaries. You know, it's a huge space. And it's very difficult to build a portfolio of experiences that genuinely spans all of that and still keeps you to the point where you can have a sensible conversation with a business leader without boring them to death and a reasonable conversation with employees and actually still retain your ability to listen to other people, which is, of course, something that not all reward people do that well. And then you throw in pensions on top of that, and you know, you've really got a colossally large field that does require a lot of knowledge. But as I say, as, as broad as we are deep would be ideal. You've hit upon one of the real challenges there. Those who are highly technical tend not to be the best communicators. How would you advise reward professionals to go about developing greater influencing and leadership skills? Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing to my mind is to maintain a sense of curiosity. I mean, the reality is that we don't do things as well as we could. And I think if you start with that assumption and that knowledge, you know, that actually things could be done better, um, then it does open you up to a lot of possibilities. And I think the next thing is to maintain as much perspective as possible on what it is that you do, because you know, reward serves a purpose. It's not an end in itself, it's a means to an end. And I think if we keep the end in view, then the means become more interesting and more malleable. There are different ways to do things. We don't know how to do things perfectly. There's room for continuous improvement and probably room for radical change, but only if you keep in mind the fact that reward has a purpose. It's not just there for its own sake. And it's very easy to fall into that trap and we just crank the handle. Well, actually, cranking the handle is just a technical exercise, whereas keeping sight of the purpose of reward is strategic, and that's far more interesting. And I think that keeps you on your toes. Some very good advice there for someone starting out in reward today. Is there any other advice you'd give to someone starting their career in reward? Well, I think, I think the first thing I'd say is congratulations. You know, I think that um, you know, if you've chosen that path, it's a great path to choose. You, you will have an extremely interesting and varied career. Um, and so hats off, you know, great, excellent. And then, as I say, I think keeping that sense of curiosity is really important. Reward is a fascinating place to be because we don't understand the dynamics well enough. You know, the whole relationship between motivation, um, you know, it's not just Pavlovian. You know, if we fall in a... Pavlovian trap of saying, here's the carrot, there's the stick, you know, that's the end of reward. It's not enough. There's much more to reward than that. And there's the whole strategic dimension, all of the fascinating stuff that we've got in terms of corporate governance. There's endless opportunities to keep people occupied and, uh, you know, really satisfied with an interesting career. So, you know, keep nimble and keep agile and keep curious.
Peter, thank you for those insights on world-class reward and your invaluable advice for the next generation of reward leaders.